Recorded live. Good evening, folks. This is January 21st, 2015, and it is episode 49 of Main Exposed. Take it away, Dottie. Thank you, Leon. Good evening and welcome. Uh, and I'm glad to see some newcomers. Uh, first time is on here tonight. Uh, let me just begin with a disclaimer that any discussion on the program uh, this evening is not to be construed as legal advice. It is merely for educational purposes only. And our discussion tonight uh, is going to surround the destruction of the Governor's Executive Council and the fraudulent evolution of Maine's Legislative Council. So you're in for a good program tonight. I'm here with my co-host, Sill. Good evening, Sill. Good night. Oh, good night. Yeah, good, good night. <laughs> good evening. <laughs> How are you, darling? All righty. You can tell it's late at night already. That's okay. Uh, and we have Lise um, DuPont uh, with us, joining us, too. She's the author uh, of Where Did the Original Constitution Constitutional State Go, uh, a main researcher, and she has done extensive research as well, and she is going to join in with her discoveries. Um, let me just start out by uh, saying or asking, you know, what is this Legislative Council? So many people don't know. Uh, there were too many agencies, entities, bodies, departments to keep track of. Well, some of us out here are keeping track. What is the Legislative Council? Per the government's website, the main state government, it states, the Legislative Council is the administrative body for the legislative branch of state government. It consists of 10 elected members of legislative leadership, the President of the Senate, the Speaker of the House, the Republican and Democratic floor leaders for both the Senate and the House of Representatives, and their assistant floor leaders. The Council is responsible for the overall management of the entire legislature. Now, Phil, this is a very powerful administrative body. These are the most, ten most powerful men in the state of Maine. They have more power than the governor. And when you well, say that they that they have oversight over everything, you're 100% right. Nothing gets done, nothing gets by anybody without the legislative council. Well, you know, you're going to give us what your research discovered about the formation of this powerful legislative council and how it destroyed the governor's executive council, which is no longer in place. So I'm going to let you take it away and... Uh, I'll put some links up. I want people to know, uh, you know, who these people are. Uh, I'll put that out in the chat room for you. But uh, hold, um, hold on to your seat because we're going for a ride with Phil. <laughs> Go ahead, and Phil. I'm a this terrible is... driver, too. <laughs> oh, not at this you weren't. <laughs> well, no, look, you're uh, in the driver's seat. Begin, um, yeah. You and I spoke this afternoon, and after we got off the phone, I started thinking. And um, I wonder if you'd indulge me in giving a slight history lesson here. Um, 
I've been listening to archived radio shows that we gave over the past several months, and I came to the conclusion that we sometimes go over the heads of our listeners because we think they are keeping up with us. And there's many people that I speak to, and you know, they're nodding their head, and I'm starting to think, do they really know what I'm saying? Because they may not understand or know the background. So if I may, I'd like to give some historic information that would set the stage for tonight's show. Absolutely. Okay. Whenever you read or discuss the Constitution, one must remember that you cannot take one word, one sentence, one paragraph out of context, and that it's easy to change the original objective, goal, or intent of the Constitution. Reading the Constitution is like reading the Bible. In other words, reading the Constitution once and not studying it could be more dangerous. Just like reading the Bible and reciting passages without learning the time period, the local area, the language, and what the words meant at the time, you, you, must need, uh, you, you must use that same understanding when studying the fabrication of the Constitution. So, now on with the history. It was just over a decade that our third president, Tom Jefferson, won the campaign against John Adams, which gave John Adams only one term. He was going for the second. This successful run for Jefferson was called the Second Revolution of the United States, and a lot of people never even heard about the Second Revolution. So, as we should know, Adams and Jefferson were our founding fathers, and now they were creating history in the creation and the building of a free nation. Never had been done before. Now our new country had to find its way to provide liberty and freedoms under a constitution that was the first and one of its kind. It didn't happen overnight. It evolved. So anyway, John Adams and Tom Jefferson were good friends during their battle against the crown, but they both had their differences as to how to build and run this new nation. Adams believed that a big government would be suitable to run the country, and Jefferson believed in a small government that stayed out of the people's business. This difference caused hateful distrust between those who supported Adams and Jefferson. Jefferson apparently convinced the people because he actually won that third presidency. Now, I'm going to get to the point, so hold on. Adams was not happy that he had lost that second term. So Adams' plan was to load the court systems with judges who supported Adams and those who believed in big government. Adams did this right up to that last night before Jefferson would take his presidential seat. When Jefferson found out what Adams did, he told James Madison, who then was the Secretary of State, or maybe he was the Attorney General, I get mixed up on the two, uh, and he told him not to perform the oath to the last appointed judge. Mr. Marbury, who was that last one appointed, filed his complaint with Madison in the Supreme Court. To simplify the complaint, Mr. Marbury claimed that the newly elected administration had to follow the procedures that were constitutionally set up. So in other words, if, uh, if Adams picked these judges, when Jefferson came in, he had to give him the oath. So anyway, this goes to court. So before this case, there were only two branches of U.S. government, the executive and the Congress. So there's only two branches. When the Supreme Court sided with Marbury, two factors became very prevalent. Jefferson now was mandated to follow the mandates of his position, and he and his administration had to follow the national constitution. I mean, duh, we had a constitution. He should have followed it. 
And secondly, because the Supreme Court bullied its way into power, it now took the place of the third branch of the U.S. government. So now we had um, three branches of the U.S. government, all because of that Marbury Mayberry. Now remember this, the word and the use of the word repugnant is most important, and this is what I'm trying to get to. It was used during this case because the definition of repugnant is extremely strong and cannot be redefined or misunderstood. And I bring this to your attention because this word is ignored in Congress and Augusta to this day. So people say, well, what the heck is the word repugnant? Well, this is it, and hang on. It's offensive, abominable, appalling, awful, disgusting, distasteful, dreadful, evil, foul, fulsome, gross, hideous, horrendous, horrible, horrid, loathsome, nasty, nauseating, nauseous, uh, noxious, obnoxious, obscene, odious, rancid, repelled, and I'm not through yet, uh, repulsive, revolting, repellent, scandalous, shocking, sickening, ugly, exceptionable, objectionable, brackish, disagreeable, dislikable, unpleasant, contemptible, displaceable, uh, detestable, hard, hateful, unhealthy, unsavory, unwholesome. Oh, I'm getting tired. Uh, lousy, miserable, atrocious, frightful, ghastly, grim, grisly, gruesome, heinous, hor- horrendous, horrific, horrifying, lurid. And I'm going to stop right there. i got three, four more lines to go. So we all know that repugnant uh, cannot be redefined. It's not like it and is. So the founders of the state of Maine begin with the formation and guidance derived from the early 1800s during the Jefferson presidency, an issue that was brought before that Supreme Court that I just mentioned and recorded as Mayberry versus Madison, Chief Justice Marshall's famous response relating to this issue is written as a maximum, and this is it, a law repugnant to the Constitution is void and that courts as well as other departments are bound by that instrument. This maxim is to be understood that a deed or a law repugnant to the Constitution is invalid and nullified. So I want you to understand how important that word repugnant is because I'm going to be mentioning it later on as we go through this. Now Jefferson also said where powers are assumed which have not been delegated, A nullification of the act is the rightful remedy. This set the stage for future evolution for proper amendments that benefited and defended the rights found in all the constitutions, state and federal. So, a law or constitutional amendment could now be created or changed and altered as long as it did not transform or deform the original theme or intent of constitutional law. So, based on the 1820 Supreme Court finding, um, no, the, um, so based on the 1800 Supreme Court finding, two constitutional articles were dedicated to ensure the future protections in our own main constitution and main laws. It was the founders' intent that if we that if a need arose. Any future endeavor to change the main constitution and main law had to advance, increase, and strengthen the original intent of the freedom and liberty. These changes had to be made within a small margin with resolves and bills that were not repugnant. I'm not going to tell you what repugnant is anymore. (laughs) 
<laughs> we got it. We got it. Write it. Okay. So here's Article Four, Part Third, Section One. It's written in the legisl. Uh, it's written that the legislature shall have full power to make and establish all reasonable laws and regulations for the defense and benefit of the people of the state not repugnant to this Constitution nor that of the United States. Article 10, Section 3 is written that all laws now in force in this state and not repugnant to this Constitution shall remain in force until altered or repealed by the legislature or shall expire by their own limitations. So they could change the Constitution, but guess what? It can't be repugnant. So, what do these two articles have to do with each other? First of all, the Constitution of Maine is the primary law of the state. Article 10, Section 6 says it is prefixed to the statutes, which means it's placed in front of the statutes. All statutes come under the Constitution. It is the supreme law of the land. Law, no law can be created that can supersede it, and all future laws must fit into that framework of the Maine and U.S. Constitutions. Also, all resolves and resolutions to add or change the Constitution must also fit into the framework of the Maine and U.S. Constitutions. The key word to any future alterations is the word repugnant. You're probably sick of that word by now. So, according to the 1820 Constitution, Article 4, Part 3rd, Section 1, it is obviously clear that the legislature is totally responsible and and, 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 and accountable for establishing all reasonable laws and regulations for the defense and benefit of the people of the state. And the legislature is also totally responsible for establishing resolves, which are constitutional amendments, for the public's acceptance. So it's obviously clear that every law or resolve fabricated by the legislature could not be repugnant or they would be in violation of the Constitution. So, uh, let me grab a little bit of a uh, uh, breath here. The founders and the authors of the original 1820 Constitution of Maine intended and expected that the legislators and the governor, because he could veto or he could uh, sign it through, when they made future resolves and bills would essentially scrutinize the objectives the meanings and their significance. So, it's important to understand that the founders believed that the governor and the legislators would approach their, approach their duties in an honest, responsible, and accountable manner without agendas or slanted political objectives. It was assumed that if a resolver bill was to be found and deemed repugnant to the Constitution of Maine and the United States, then the remaining legislators would not let any repugnant bill or resolve pass the committee. And lastly, as a failsafe, it was expected and understood that the governor could use his veto power on resolves and bills that were to be repugnant. So to this day, the judges, lawyers, governors, and the legislators do not use nor do they understand the intent and the relationship of these two articles because the main people don't read, they don't understand the main constitution, and they don't understand what the word repugnant means. So, um, 
Okay, let's change the gears here and go back into history just a little bit more. Jefferson is known for attending Maine's Constitution Convention in the year 1819. And he was our founding father. Remember, 19 years earlier, 19 years isn't very much, but 19 years earlier, the Supreme Court, using Marbury versus Madison, bullied its way as an equal member of the U.S. government branches. Jefferson, along with two 109 other main convention members installed this established view of the three branches in Maine. So we even have in, in our own constitution the three branches, uh, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, which, which uh, this Article 3 established the separation of the powers that are written. And you have to understand each one of these branches could not overpower or be stronger than the other one. They had equal equal level level powers. Article I, three. Go ahead. Uh, first of all, uh, there are only two branches, and they're both located in the legislature. Okay, and if explain you look at article, what you mean by that. If you look at Article three, you're going to see that they're sorry, called the departments, right. branches. Okay, I'm sorry. Thank you for correcting me. I'm glad you jumped right in there. You're right. Okay. We have three three departments: the executive, the legislative, and uh, judicial. So, so now this is what Article Three says: the powers of this government shall be divided into three distinct departments: the legislative, executive, and judicial. Section two says to be kept separate: no person or persons belonging to one of these departments shall exercise any of the powers properly belonging to either of the others, except in the cases herein expressly directed or permitted. And when you read through the Constitution, there's no way that one, one department can overpower the other. They have equal power. Um, okay, so now let's get into how this whole mess got started. The, anybody have any questions yet? Okay. I don't see any in any the, on the chat. Board? Okay. Not, no, not on the board, but if anybody has a question who's on the phone, press star 8, and we know you have a question. Okay, so it's Go important to, to understand that uh, our Constitution uh, was, was written by some of the same people who wrote the National Constitution. They, they wrote it very clearly that the Constitution can change. You can alter the Constitution but it always has to be for the betterment of the people and cannot be repugnant. So uh, okay, another thing I'd like to say, Phil. Okay. Uh, uh, if you look at Article 3 of the Constitution of the State of Maine, original, uh, it says that the three departments shall be distinct. Remember, uh, they each have their own powers, which is called the separation of powers under the common law. So, so one can't be more powerful or weaker than the other ones. Right. They have to be kept equal. Right. Okay. Uh, the 1820 Constitution of Maine had many original and several new fail-safes incorporated into its order of performance. One of these fail-safes was to grant the executive with a body of advisors who were supposed to be nonpartisan and were somewhat insulated from outside influence. Now, the President of the United States did not have a mandated independent council to help guide him or her and provide suggestions that could be drawn from. However, 
the main constitution at that time in 1820, Article 4, Part 2nd, the governor had a seven-member team that was called the Executive Council. Some people called it the Governor's Council, but the governor had no power over this council. They worked together. The eight of them worked together. Now, i got to say one more thing. That Executive Council was like a filter. The governor could not overpower the legislature nor the, uh, nor the judicial. The judicial and the uh, legislative could not overpower the governor. They were totally separate. They had equal powers. And it was this key, it was this key, key group of people, the executive council, that kept everything in balance. And this is what the uh, Article 4, Part 2nd said, and it's important that I read this. There shall be a council, not a, a lawyer, a council member, to consist of seven persons, citizens of the United States and residents of this state, to advise the governor in the executive part of governor, government, whom the governor shall have full power at his discretion to assemble, and he, with the counselors, or a majority of them, and if there are seven of them, then he just needed four, may from time to time hold and keep a council for ordering and directing the affairs of the state according to the law. And remember that the governor is supposed to provide, um, I'm missing a word here, he's supposed to enforce all the laws of the state. Okay, the counselors, hold, somebody hold wanted on, to so say something. Go ahead. Article 4, Part 2nd. And which section? Um, 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 uh, that was section one. Now we're going to go on to section two. The counselors shall be chosen annually by joint ballot of the senators and the representatives in convention. Then I'm going to jump to section four, which I think is one of the most important ones here. No member of Congress or the legislature of this state, nor any person holding any office under the United States, nor any civil officers under this state, shall be counselors, because they did not want to violate Article 3 in the separation of powers. Okay, but the, the other purpose of the council was to prevent a dictator governor. Mm-hmm. Right. Let me ask you this again. Uh, Article 4. I'm sorry, Article 5, Part 2nd. I gave you the wrong one. There was a okay. mark in front of the V here. All right, correction, Article 5. Okay. Article 5, Part 2nd. There was four sections Article there. Article 5. Yeah, and that was of the original 1820 Constitution. Okay. I, I put the uh, link out for people to follow along as yeah. you're going, you know, if they want to. Okay. 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 The primary, article, five. article 5. The primary reason for the language in this article for the council was to have an independent body separate from any outside influence from any group or body of people. It was pure and simple. Throughout the Constitution, the reference to the decisions made by the governor, the council is also referenced. Even though the council was to advise in the affairs of the state according to the law, the counselors were essential to the decisions that were made by the governor, and as Lee said, this protected the people from a dictator-type uh, governor. 
If any powerful body, such as Congress or the Maine legislature or the Maine court system, wanted to pass repugnant bills or repugnant resolves, they would have to convince the seven members and the governor together, all eight of them. And you're talking the governor's council. That's correct, not lawyers. After studying many bills and resolves that were enacted since 1820, we know for a fact that many bills and resolves were slipped by the lawmakers, but we're not sure if these resolves or bills were possibly snuck in by all of the executive counselors and the governors. Does this mean that the counselors were stupid or fooled, or whether they were in on the conspiracy to ignore these articles? Uh, We don't know for sure, but we can certainly speculate at this time. So, where do we go from here? Um... Okay, so, go ahead. Um, to tie in the legislative committee, I don't understand uh, legislative committee. How did all this come come to play? Um, I don't understand your question. Where did the council come from? It was in the 1820. No, uh, I'm wondering. There was a uh, once the executive council was eliminated unlawfully. We haven't got there yet. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to go step by step because a lot of times we we you know we know what we're talking about, but uh, there's a lot of people out there that don't get it, and the legislators for sure don't get it. Um, during the executive ball and the next day, uh, I'm sorry, the the governor's ball, and then the next day when we uh, roamed the halls of the uh, legislature, we talked to a lot of people and 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 talked to them about this various issue uh, this very issue here. And they were confused, and you just can't explain it in, in a few minutes. Uh, no, you, you, no, you can't. And Phil, before you get started on your next part, uh, Aroostook Watchman has a call. Lee, um, want to unmute Aroostook Watchman? Hello, Aroostook. I'm listening. Hey, good evening. Uh, hey, good evening. A question for you. I uh, just noticed this. As I was reading on uh, what Dottie posted on the 1820, and then I picked up my own hard copy of the 1820, and it says exactly the same thing. There shall be a council to consist of seven persons, citizens of the United States. And that that kind of surprises me that citizens of the United States is in there and um, in capital letters and resident and residents of this state to advise the governor in executive part of government. Very interesting. Um, and it says residents of Maine. Uh, okay, now I, I can explain that. See, before the 14th Amendment, which, which never passed lawfully and it, it came about in 1868, before that, whenever the phrase was used, citizen of the United States, it meant citizen of one of these United States. One of the several, several, and it it should have been, yeah, anyway, it should have been several. But but we have to understand what was meant back then. Right. They understood correctly. We've got it a little mixed up. Right. Right. Yeah, but see, we mix it up with the 18, with the Fourteenth Amendment citizen, when in fact there was no such thing in 1820. Right. Prior to 1868, 
Right. There were there were multiple citizen uh, uh, statuses. A state citizen could be a state citizen and a United States citizen, or neither. Okay. Now, if you go read the original Thirteenth Amendment, and I'm talking about the original one now, and when it makes reference to citizen of the United States, it refers to them as them, plural, meaning states. Right. Okay. I want to you understand the phrase citizen of the United States as used in 1820. All right, Phil, let me ask you this. Thank you, Aroostik, and, uh, you know, come back with something else if you've got a question. Phil, in this council now, as far as members, mm-hmm. uh, it, does it, it says, um, and residents of Maine? Yes. Okay. So you or I could sit on that. Yes, we could. Um, they they definitely didn't want anybody to uh, be from out of state or to hold any position that might uh, bring in invested interest uh, from from the outside. This is the reason that why. That was the idea. That's right. That's correct. Now, so, somebody, somebody, uh, Bob Bob Roy, Article, uh, it's the eighteen twenty Article Five Part Two. He says is not in the present constitution. Uh, that's correct. It was removed. Okay. And it was, it was unconstitutionally, unconstitutionally removed, and we're going to get into that. But I'm going step by step right now. Okay. Continue, Phil. Okay. Um, in the year, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of history here, and I don't want to bog anybody down with it. So in the year 1927, a resolve was enacted. Now, this wasn't a resolve for an amendment to the Constitution. It was, an, it was just a resolve. It was enacted to change the main Constitution's intent. This position and its responsibility for the first of its kind in the state of Maine, one could only imagine that the need to preserve written law, develop a general order, and establish a technical procedure to facilitate searches and to systematically arrange, incorporate, and catalog volumes of paper that can be successfully uh, and uniformly written. Um, So in this resolve was the duty of a commissioner who was going to be called the um, the reviser. His main function was to revise, collate, arrange and consolidate all the general and public laws now in force. There were other minor functions, but it's unimportant, uh, unimportant for this report right now. So what we need to know here is that they decided to create a reviser. Now, why would they do this? Well, figure they've got all these laws. How are they going to catalog them? If we go to a library, they've got them all cataloged properly so that you could just go right in there and they know exactly where everything is. When they're establishing law for the state of Maine here, um, if, if you don't do it properly, you could really mess things up and get things mixed up, and uh, legislators need to uh, go back into law to actually create new law if they need to. So there, there was a need for the reviser. I'm going to have to admit that. But uh, as we find out, the reviser really um, gets himself into a bind here. So 
at that time and now, it makes sense for a responsible person and staff to perform these functions. But as the time passed and the qualifications, the accountability, and the requirements were skillfully changed, it is easy to see how this powerful office and its staff could influence the future bills and constitutional amendments to fit an unseen agenda. And, you know, you're probably going to say, an agenda? What the heck are you talking about? We'll see how this agenda falls falls out here. At first, the qualified commissioner, who is the reviser, was expected to be learned in the law. What learned in the law meant back then, and should probably still be to this day, was common law and constitutional law. The key phrase here is learned in the law. The commissioner not only needed to function physically in keeping the past laws in general order, but he must understand how the laws can be written, established to function under the Maine and U.S. constitutions and the common law court system. This requirement was written in the law, and this is what it said at the time, interpreting the statutes and the Maine constitution which appear in the Maine reports and to all decisions interpreting the Constitution of the United States, which appear in the United States Supreme Court reports. The commissioner would need to know by heart the Maine and the United States Constitution and to understand past and current Supreme Law decisions. That's an awful lot of material. Without being learned in the law, the commissioner would be nothing but a high-paid librarian that only knew how to collate, arrange, and consolidate all the general and public laws. Now, I'm going to stop for a second. You're going to say, well, geez, how the heck is a person going to know that? Well, in 1825, a law was passed that mandated the school system, all the school systems in Maine, to teach the U.S. and Maine constitutions. So, people back then did know the constitutions, both of them, and they knew them by heart. So this is no real big deal for the people back then. In 1929, a commissioner was named and commissioned with a full staff, and it was formed for the completion of their work and the perfection of the revision. This time, it was the duty of the said commission to be authorized and its discretion to index and make proper arrangements for the indexing of the revised statutes and the, con uh, the constitutions of the United States and Maine. Now note that the Maine and, US and the U.S. constitutions were mentioned three times in that 1929 resolve. One year later, 1930, the new resolve expanded the revisor's new responsibility to assist in the preparation drafting of legislation, and to revise all legislation and statutes. Okay, in 1931, the next year, the term of the reviser is established. He used to serve six years. That's no big deal. Uh, 1933, the, um, the resolve expanded to the reviser's new responsibility to, during each session of the legislature, to draft public laws at the request of the members of the legislature. It wasn't a requirement. Hey, Phil. Yes. Hey, I'm confused. What? What does the reviser's office have to do with the legislative council? Well, it evolved. It evolved. Um, things changed through the years. And, and what I'm trying to show here is that 
every year they gave this reviser more and more work. The staff of the uh, the reviser got bigger and bigger, and then and then what happened after that was the requirements of the reviser no longer needed to be learned in the law. All his job was then was to collate and make sure that everything was in order and to revise as required. So, so um, as, as we go through this, um, let me see if I can't just jump in here a little bit. Um, you know, let, me, let, me, let me jump in while you're doing that. Um, this is the the prop. This is the progression. This is how things started out, how they were improved, modified, and then how they were infiltrated and destroyed. It so, was slow, like boiling frog. Okay, and this is the normal progression as the the tools were put into place to make this all work well, it also meant that some of the responsibility of the legislators could be shifted over to the reviser's office. Mm -hmm. And as in any good human being, if someone else can do my work and I can get the credit for it, hallelujah. And so that's why we have a reviser's office that has incrementally, thank you, GC, has incrementally become the government, mm -hmm. which we are endeavoring to um, shine the light on these, these cockroaches and reverse this process and put it back into the constitutional process. Good now, explanation. Good. Now, now, we all know who makes the law. It's the legislature, right? Right. Well, <laughs> uh, we won't go there. That's another another, <laughs> another segment. Um, so it's the legislature who makes these laws, and if they're making the laws, they're taking power away from one group here, and uh, we're going to get into that. In 1947, everything changes drastically. The governor and his council no longer appoint the reviser. So the reviser used to be appointed by the governor, worked with the governor, had nothing to do with the legislature, but now things change. The, officer, uh, the office of the reviser and its responsibility is now transferred to the Legislative Research Committee. Now, who's making the laws here? The legislature. The Legislative Research Committee membership is made up of completely all legislators. Three senators appointed by the President of the Senate and seven representatives appointed by the Speaker of the House. The new reviser will be appointed from within the 10-member committee and will also hold the position of director. His qualifications shall be, and this is all it was. Now, remember before, he had to be learned in the law. Now he had to be, or she, well-versed in economics, in political science, and law, and methods in research. So this Legislative Research Committee is given enormous responsibility and an authority to carry out their agenda and the power and control 
over the main statutes, not the Constitution. Many of these responsibilities and outreach of the unconstitutional and allow the committee to infringe into the separation of the constitutional departments. Okay, when did this committee come about? What year? 1947. Okay, so they were around long before. See, see, this is a precursor to getting rid of the executive council down the road. That's right. So they went from the reviser to the legislative research committee, and now they're all legislators on this legislative research committee. And now they took the power away from the governor. See, that's why I had to go incrementally here. They took the power away from the governor and the the executive council who used to appoint that uh, reviser. They knew who this reviser was. They trusted this reviser. But now it's the legislative council, uh, I'm sorry, the legislative research committee, legislators who now appoint this reviser. So now the fox is getting into the chicken coop. Uh-huh. Okay, how much time we got here? Oh, well, darn, we're we, running we one low. If we go over, is that okay with you a little that's, bit? That's fine with me. Okay, fine. Keep going. Okay. Um, uh, let's see now. So, the committee shall have the authority... To now, which committee? This is which the legislative committee? research. I haven't got any further okay. than that. Okay. This is by statute. And what I believe to be the most fraudulent and unconstitutional of this whole thing is the committee shall have the authority to administer oaths, issue subpoenas, and compel the attendance of witnesses and the production of any paper, books, accounts, documents, and testimony, and to cause the disposition of witnesses either residing within or without the state. And then they forced the governor from time to time to send the committee messages containing his recommendations for legislation and explaining the policy of the administration. They're demanding that the governor... See, now they're taking his power away to begin with, and now they're uh, demanding him to come before this legislative group of people to explain all his little tricks of the trade. Now, it's, it's, it's always been the constitutional authority, such as the governor, the secretary of state, or the justice, who was learned in the law, who had the authority to provide the oaths. Now it's being given to the legislature. Unconstitutional. It's always been the courts and the judicial department's responsibility to issue subpoenas and compel the evidence of witnesses or the attendance of witnesses and the production of any paper, books, accounts, documents, and testimony, and to cause the disposition of witnesses either residing within or without the state. So, so go ahead. Hang on a second. So that was 1944, did you say? 47. 47, because remember in 1963 which is, again, a precursor, 1963, they repealed and replaced the entire judicial department. Mm-hmm. So this is very interesting. Okay. Now, the governor is the supreme executive power of this state. He does not need to share his recommendations for legislation, nor does he have to explain the policy of his administration with this committee. 
He can enter emergency bills at any time that he wants, and during real emergencies, he may issue executive orders until the legislature could re-examine the need for the order. But I guess the point I'm trying to make here is, is that every time they make a move, it's to remove the power of the governor and to switch power over to the legislature. That's right. Okay, now we're going to jump into 1973. The Legislative Research Committee was dismantled and replaced by the Legislative Council. The Council, as with the Legislative Research Committee, consists of ten members, five of which shall be from the Senate and five of which shall be from the House of Representatives. The committee shall have the following members, the President of the Senate, the Speaker of the House, the floor leaders, and the assistants, as Dottie mentioned in the beginning. The chairman of the Legislative Council would be elected from within its own membership. The authority of the new Legislative Council grows in comparison to the Legislative Research Committee. Now the Legislative Council is given the authority under public law, copied and recorded, uh, and and, and I've recorded. um, You've got to understand, the Legislative Research Committee had something like 10 jobs. And when I go through this paperwork here, um, they've added something like 10, 10 extra uh, papers here. Um, get a load of this. To prepare and approve all legislative budgets. To establish the salaries and the schedules for all employees of legislative service uh, agencies, departments and agencies to develop relatively uniform salary schedules for the House and Senate employees and officers. Now, at one time, the uh, the legislators and the judges and, and people who work for the state were given a compensation. Now they're given a salary. Big difference. Uh, when the legislature is not in session, they're to assign bills, resolves, and studies for consideration by the joint standing committees. They're the ones who pick the uh, chairs, the co-chairs, uh, who's going to go on the committees. If they feel a person is strong in a committee that's, that favors their agenda, they will put that person on that committee. If they see that that person is strong and that that person can can hold them back, they'll put them onto a committee where where they have no expertise whatsoever, and and that weakens their effort to produce good law. So uh, this legislative uh, council is extremely extremely powerful. Um, let's see what else we have here that I think you'd be interested. Um, oh, <laughs> they they also uh, run the personnel department. And uh, they also established published rules of procedure for the conduct of business of the council. And uh, it goes on and on and on and on. So they're in control of the personnel department. If you want a job at the uh, through the main government, if, if they happen to know who you are, they could blackball you if they wanted to. So they're they're extremely powerful. Let me kind of end this up here a little bit so if anybody has any questions. I have something to share when you're done. Uh, just give me one second here. Okay, I'm pretty close to the end with this now. Oh, guess what? This was put in with an emergency clause. 
Now, why the heck would they want an emergency clause? Um, I could get into a conspiracy here where they wanted to, in 1973, get the Legislative Council in and get the Executive Council out, but they couldn't pass the resolution to make an amendment to the Constitution to remove the Executive Council. It took three more years of badgering and bullying. So in 1976, they finally removed the Executive Council, and then the Legislative Council came in and took over that business. This is the reason why they put the emergency clause in in 1973, hoping that it could get in before they removed the council uh, from the governor, but uh, that didn't happen. Well, Phil, they came in uh, through um, a statute, um, Title Three. Well, yes, they did come in under a statute, but they had to remove the, the executive council first. And it, it, it was brought in under, get a hold of this, legislative reform. Now, how do you remove language from the Constitution on legislative reform? You don't do that. How do you get rid of the governor's executive council under legislative reform? You, you do things under the legislature for the legislature. You just don't do things with the legislature to remove constitutional language in, in uh, constitutional offices. So it, it was a lie from the very beginning. They they uh, tried for years and years and years, and it wasn't until certain people got into the right right positions, and they lied to the committees, they lied to their their party, and then they lied to the entire legislature, and they fooled them, and it was totally totally fraudulent. Well, who was uh, you know, initiating all of this, or was it a group of people? Was it one uh, person that said, hey, why don't we do something? Well, they were a group of people, but I have before me, you know, usually when I do research to a legislative uh, committee, I, I like to get the arguments that, that went on. And um, the speaker at that time asked uh, Mr. Martin to, to speak. And um, he said, basically, that had the governor in 1965 uh, veto, vetoed the statutory changes dealing with the powers of the governor's council, we would have done away with most of those powers that the council had at that time. Those powers would have been transferred. Then he goes on to say, this is John Martin, if this bill should in effect become law without the other one becoming part of the Constitution, then what you would in effect would have done and listen to this one closely, would be to transfer the statutory power of the Executive Council to the Legislative Council. Well, first of all, the Executive Council did not have statutory powers. They had constitutional powers. So he lied, and we I've got this right in front of me. This is John Martin? This is John Martin. He so lied is he right basic, there. Is he basically the one that was trying to get the Legislative Council in place? Yes. And it wasn't, and only, he, and, and it it wasn't only him. It sure as heck did work because he's a powerful boy. But see, he, he used language and words that really confused and, um, and got people mixed up. When he used this phrase, 
to transfer the statutory powers of the executive council to the legislative council when the legislators heard that it's no big deal to to shift the uh, statutory powers from the executive council to the legislative council but they didn't realize and nobody at that time said wait a minute stop there mr martin the executive council has constitutional powers you don't transfer constitutional powers to the legislative council you can't do that it's fraudulent and you can't transfer a constitutional provision into a statute that's correct well okay so they did and they and um whatever the what in the 70s this so this was is 1976 when, so this is probably when the statute came in title three chapter seven um uh, when the Legislative Council came under statutory law. That's correct. So, with the, with the help of John Martin. Yes. Okay, now, now I'd like to share something. Go ahead. Okay, I've got the legislative record. Uh, it, this, is, this is the House, June 4, 1975, and it's on page 81610. Zero. Now pay attention to who this person is because we're all familiar with this person, in most cases anyways. Okay, the speaker, pro tem. The chair recognizes the gentlewoman from Auburn, Mrs. Snow. Mm-hmm. Miss, uh, Mrs. Snow is Olympia Snow. Right. Her husband, uh, Peter, was killed and she took his place. Right. Okay, now listen to what she has to say, which I didn't realize um, for a long time that she was involved in this too. But here she, here's what she says, and she has plenty to say. Mr. Speaker, ladies and gentlemen of the House, the Executive Council is at best an administrative body, which, which is false. It's a mm. constitutional body. That's right whose numerous but insignificant functions could easily be transposed elsewhere. So now we know what she thinks. Yep. In the early maturation years of state government, the council was primarily designed as a dual executive to act as a watchdog for the legislature, since the legislature met biannually and certainly not for as long as a, of a period of time as we do today, and to assist the governor in completing his task in a time when he did not have the full-time personnel that our governors now enjoy. Uh. Council was also created as an attempt to avoid an administratively oriented government to which our founding fathers were adverse. These reasons are no longer realistic, considering the existence of countless departments, quasi-independent agencies, numerous miscellaneous and part-time boards, commissions, and regulatory agencies. Okay. Now I'm going to go. I'm going to skip here a little bit because she, boy, she's got plenty to say. As one political scientist wrote as far back as 1915, quote, the entire history of the council from its inception to the present time has dramatized its negative role. Oh, really? Mm. 
It is not constructive, and it is not concerned with progress or programs. As a consequence, the governor does not rely on the council for information. It is not, in a real sense, a body of, of advisors to whom the governor looks for guidance and assistance on formulating administrative policy. He must turn to the heads of departments for such information. The council destroys the unity of the executive in the concentration of responsibility and thus militates against efficiency. It exists in defiance of the theory of executive responsibility. Okay, now I'm going to go down. I'm going to I'm going to go down just a little bit here, just to show you. And this is available at the law library, by the way. That's correct. Okay, um, and then she says, she says I signed committee report A because, in my estimation, it is the most workable and most effective mechanism by which to transfer the confirmation powers vested in the Executive Council. Legislative Confirmation Committee, as proposed by this report, is a good compromise. It is a bipartisan committee composed of members of both bodies. Establishing a committee made up of legislators would be more in keeping with a representative form of government. Is this woman kidding? Undoubtedly, they would be more closely exposed to the public eye and more available to the people. So, so oh, I'm really? going to continue down here. And then she says, in summary, there is little justification for retaining the executive council conceived in 1819 for reasons no longer apparent today. Again, I strongly recommend acceptance of committee report a, which I can tell you what that is, and if you want to, if you want to know that. Well, Liz, do you, do you have that document that we could put up? I do have this document. Can we? Can you send it to me, and I'll put it up. You want it up on the blog? Uh, uh, well, I can make an attempt. Okay, now you wait a second. Let me read to you what report A, which which she just told us she signed. Uh, it says here the speaker recognizes the gentleman from Hollowell, Maine, Mr. Stubbs. Mr. Stubbs says, Mr. Speaker, ladies and gentlemen of the House, I should like to refresh the memory of the members of the House. Report A would be a committee composed of 10 members of the House, five members of the other body, which would be a legislative confirmation committee to confirm the appointments made by the governor. This would take the place of the Executive Council once it was abolished. So, what do you think of that? They were all in cahoots then to destroy the power of the governor and to weaken it and to give the power back to the, or to give the power to the legislature. Ten of them. Yes. Well, actually, um, <laughs> well, the ten of them, the council or has control of the whole legislature. But see now, they get their working uh, walking orders from a, from Washington, and then Washington gets their walking orders from higher ups. That's right. Okay. Now let, let me now, can, a little bit. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, please. Phil, do you want to continue where you were so that you can get in? You know this 
Well, Ms. we Council? just had one more thing to say, I believe. So okay. let's, let's follow through with what Lisa said. Oh, okay. All right. Go ahead, Lisa. And the only reason I want to say that is because I think this document is very important. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is a Mr. Buston, B-U-S-T-I-N, from Augusta, Maine. Okay. And then uh, I'm not going to read everything he says, but here's what he says. This executive council is sitting now, in my opinion, and I may, may be prejudiced, is one of the best ones we've ever had. Mm-hmm. They are the first group to institute public hearings on appointments. They have not been caught up in the partisan politics that we have seen in the past. Now, that's all positive. Now, watch what he does. Now he switch gears. However, I still agree that the executive council is an albatross. It should be removed. After what he just told us, now he yeah. says it's an albatross and it should be removed. We should adopt Report A and trust that the people at the other end will do the fair thing. Now, how, so can least- you, how can you say it's the best one we've had uh, and, and, and they're not a partisan, they're not into partisan politics and whatever and say all these nice things about the executive council, but then you switch gears and say that we that it's 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 been an albatross and it should be removed. I mean, what kind of a guy is this? So, Lee's this was done before uh, McKernan was governor. That's right. Right. Yeah. That's right. Who was the governor? Who was the governor before McKernan? It's interesting that Olympia Snow was part of this. Mm-hmm. Well, she's a part of a lot of things. But who was the governor at the time? Who was the Would governor have it before? Would been McKernan? Brennan. Yeah, um. Yes, it was. Oh, jeez. Okay. Oh, no. it, it might have been Brennan. Uh, I'm not sure, but it might. Yes, have been. I think it, it was Joe Joe Brennan. Yeah, I, Joe I could Brennan. be wrong on that, but he, well, you know, he's he another another there. big player, another big player. Yeah. Well, you have to realize that that the whole mission and job of of a lot of the higher ups, and I'm not talking about the legislators who who uh, are trying to do their best, whether they're Democrat, Independent, or Republican. Uh, but there's a lot of good ones there who are who are trying their best, but they're really fooled. And, and they're kept fighting each other, and, and it's, it's done by design to do this. The leadership loves to see these fights going on, and this is how they're able to control. And, and they're able to control with language. They're able to control with, with many uh, um, uh, tools that they use. And this was one of them. Both Republicans and Democrats tried to destroy that executive council. They needed to be there then. They need to be there today. Uh, I made contact with the governor, uh, governor's office just the other day saying that uh, one of the bills that we want to, uh, or one of the resolves that we want to create as an amendment to the Constitution is to give him back his legislative council. Now, we don't even have to go through the legislature on this. If we could prove to the governor that this uh, bill and resolve that was done in 1973 and 1976 was repugnant right. to the U.S. and Maine Constitution, we could nullify that. Right. don't even have to go through the process. And this is why I spent that time in the beginning painstakingly explaining that word repugnant and, and using the 1820 Marbury versus Madison Supreme Court finding is that any bill or, or any uh, law repugnant to the Constitution is null and void.
Well, you so, know, this came this came in when Joe Brennan was the governor. And why didn't he say anything and step up? Well, maybe he was in on it too. Who the heck knows? I, I, I I'm not him. I wasn't there then. Right. But we're here today. Right. And we need to do what we need to do today. Okay. And we need to go on from from this point here. Right. To make sure that the governor looks at this information, understands this information. We there's good members on the legislative council right now who who need this information. I'm trying to get on the agenda. Uh, I spoke with the director. His name is Grant uh, Penoyer, and uh, I asked to get put on the agenda so that we might be able to speak to the Legislative Council. Um, and I spoke with two of the Legislative Council members, explaining to them that you know they need to get the education on not only the Constitution but the history of the Constitution so that they can make proper proper law. Now they the legislative committee they have meetings every month, right? Yes, the for the fourth Thursday of every month. And usually it's in the afternoon. So open to the open to the public and you know, don't you think it would be a good idea if we can get, you know, some supporters, you know, to attend mm-hmm. these uh meetings? It's once a month. Well, that would be good, but we all know that a lot of these uh committee meetings um, no, no matter what committee they are, it's like watching a soap opera. Prior to the soap opera, there is a painstaking process that goes that that, that takes place where people um, go go through uh, certain act, uh, certain actions and certain words, so that when they finally get to that committee, they know exactly what they're going to do, what they're going to say to make it look good for the public, and I've seen this go on and on for years. Of, of course, but you know, Phil, you've got this this current um, council that's sitting there unlawfully. The people know now. Yeah. How are they going to feel when we sit there and, you know, question them about that? Well, um, I have no problem with the legislative council counseling the legislature but they don't have any right to take over a lot of the other processes that they have. Um, and the governor needs to have his council back again. So if the legislator wants the legislative council, let him have it. But the governor needs his executive council. Mm-hmm. And, and they have to divvy out what the council is supposed to have. But if it's an unlawful entity... um. Why well, should it be there? It's 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 unlawful because of the language that's in the statute, and that can very well be changed. And the, mm-hmm. that needs to be changed. So let them keep their legislative council, but we need to change the language in there to remove the power that they have over the governor. Okay, let me see if I can't wrap this up here. Right. Um. Let's see. There was no emergency to get this uh, legislation through. So secondly, when you know that there was a hidden agenda to abolish the governor's executive council, the emergency legislation doesn't make any sense. The longer the governor's council was in power, the less the criminals could get by with good legislators and the people. Now, it's amazing as to the extreme power and control that this new legislative council is responsible and accountable to, uh, and they did this within a 50-year period. It is the slow boiling frog, just like uh, the Aroostook uh, watchman up north had mentioned prior to this. So um, this started in 1927. 
And by, uh, by 50 years later, the governor's council was totally removed, starting off with the revisers' uh, committee, or the revise, yeah, the revisers' committee, then the legislative research committee, then the legislative council, and then guess what they did? Is they gave back the revisers' committee uh, as a cubbyhole to the legislative council. So they've gone full circle here. It, it's amazing. So now this power. Uh, that this group has extre- is, is extreme. The Legislative Council is akin to an octopus with more than eight tentacles that essentially reaches into every department and branch of government which affects the main people's lives. What a plan. <laughs> Nothing's out of reach from their oversight, power, and control. So basically, Phil, ten people control the state. Yes. And we have to live... What's that, Lise? Unlawfully. Unlawfully. And we, and, and we have to live by the the rule of these ten people. Right. So Unreal. What, I, what I propose and what I propose to the legislative council, what I propose to the governor, what I propose to a lot of the legislators, what I propose to the sheriff's department is a curriculum needs to be created. I, I spoke with the director to the legislative council we're we're ready, willing, and able, capable to create this this curriculum. I sent out a uh, bit of work that we have done before as to uh, some of the curriculum that we've created for the sheriff's department uh, as an example of of what we do. I uh, I want to go before the legislative council and make the proposal that and and they're the ones who are in power right now that can say yes or no to this. They can say yes to a uh, class for the full legislature. He asked me if we uh, would want to be paid, and I said the only thing that I want is travel pay, uh, food and lodging if we have to stay overnight, and um, would be more than glad to set up the curriculum. So he's going to be bringing this before the legislative council and see if uh, he can't get me some time up in front of him. Wow, so that's this that's is what good, we Phil. need. This is what we need to do. Is we need to do it. We're playing in their sandbox. If they refuse to do this, they are going to be refusing to know, to read, to study, to understand how to use that constitution. Now, are they ready to say that to the public? I don't know. But I'll tell you, if they do, the public is going to know very quickly that they don't want to use the Constitution. And what are they going to say then? Well, we need to know, you know, if they're going to accept your uh, invite, the Legislative Council I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you have word yet? No, this was only put in, I believe, yesterday. <laughs> Okay. I think it was Alrighty. yesterday. I don't know one day from another anymore. Okay, but the uh, meeting. So it's 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 been done very recent, and um, we're we're watching history unfold itself. Okay, um, and that meeting is on Thursday, the twenty ninth. The twenty ninth, and if I can't get on the twenty ninth, there's another meeting February twenty sixth. Okay. What are they? What is this? The fourth. Uh, the fourth uh, Thursday. Fourth. All right. They have a meetings every fourth Thursday of the month. Right. Would it be good to watchdog that that um, committee or council? 
With, without a doubt, um, when Bob Roy and I walked into that council meeting, they knew we were there. Uh, two of the members, I, or one of the members I had spoken with the day before, uh, after that legislative council meeting, uh, I spoke with uh, Bob Roy and I spoke to um, one of the other members, and um, she was extremely interested in what we had to say about offering a class on the Constitution. But when when we walked into that legislative council meeting, we sat right up in front to let them know, here we are. We're watching you. Um, you you may not be passing any any uh, secrets or any problem or uh, any criminal activity in front of us, but I wanted them to know that we're there. Well, when somebody's there, they're, they've got to be careful. You know, they they can still work behind the scenes, but... Oh, yeah, they have telephones. They have uh, all, many means of communicating. Now, didn't you speak to uh, one of the members of that committee about this, or that council? Well, um, yeah, prior to that, uh, I spoke to a Democrat, really nice guy, and I explained what we were planning on doing, and I gave him a bit of history on the legislative council, and he was quite surprised as to the knowledge that we had. As a matter of fact, I said to him, why would several old men want to come before you and have you ridicule us, put tin hats on our heads, unless... And I let him finish that sentence, and he says, unless you guys really know what you're talking about. So he knows that we know. He knows that we have the information that they don't. So I'm, I'm hoping that he's an honest guy and that he continues to be an honest guy. And I, I said to him, and I'll say it to anybody else, I don't care if they're Democrat or Republican or Independent, if, if they're good people and they believe in the Constitution and they want to use that Constitution and follow it, then I really don't care what party they belong to because they, they, they belong to, to us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Alrighty, Phil, do you have more that you want to go on to, um, or do you want to wrap up? No, let's wrap this up. Uh, I think I think we've beaten this to death. I think anybody out there has been overloaded with information. All I can say is that the Revisors Committee is, was, was evolved into the Legislative Research Committee, which was given fantastic power. When uh, the Legislative Research Committee was cre- uh, uh, evolved to the Legislative Council, um, that that was a horrible move. It was a fraudulent move because it wasn't only to create the Legislative Council. The reason behind it was to take over uh, uh, or to transfer constitutional authority to statutory authority, and that cannot be done. If anything... That's treasonous. It's a violation of the Constitution. It's a violation of the powers that were set up in Article 3. They're not allowed to do this. Um, if, if I was any of the people who was responsible for doing this, I would be darn set today to change things around and say, hey, I made a big mistake. I was wrong. Let's give, you, give the governor back his executive counsel. That's good. Lise, any last comment? Uh, No, but I'm still confused as to the connections of the Legislative Committee, the Revisor's Office, and the uh, Legislative Council. I guess I wish to actually see it as opposed to hearing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, um, 
you would have to get this information out of the same place that I got out of, out of the legislative, uh, um, uh, the law library, and you would want the laws that were passed in 1929, uh, 1931, 33, 44, 47, 64, 73, and 84. And uh, if, if you were to contact the people who work there and say, look, I'd like to have the laws that pertain to the revisor's office, um, they could set you up with that. And and then you would have all that information before you. And, okay. Um, it would scare you to actually see how that evolved. But you just can't get one of those uh, laws that passed. You, you need to get the progression and to actually read and see how it evolved. Right. It was right. a monster. Oh, I bet. Well, Lisa's come up with some monsters, too, oh, during yes. our our calls that we've had. Yeah. You know how one thing went to an, from another thing? With with all these resolves that were passed and oh. and today, well, Phil, you did a fantastic job with that research, and Lise, you're doing a fantastic job. It's information, you know, a lot of it I didn't know about, and I'm sure others didn't. Uh, it's nothing that we would think about unless you're digging into something, and one thing leads you to another, and then you mm. end up a total mess. Well, what you end up with, and that's what we have today, is a dictatorship. Well, we end up with a mess called today. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was very interesting. Very well, interesting. What, what, Liz? It's dictatorship, and we're all slaves. Yeah. Yeah, they well, did it, definitely they did it slowly. Slavery. They did it slowly, like, uh, True, uh, true American is saying they did it slowly so as not to raise alarm. It's like the frog in water. Yeah. That's right. But we're pay- you know we're paying the price. Um, we've lost everything that was locally controlled. That's right. We, we no longer have everything. local control. We got yep. these ten men as members of the legislative council who who call the shots. Yep. That's pretty scary. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. But how many of our legislators know this? Zero. Yeah, I, I, that, that would I've be my guess. To, well, see now, it's taken an hour to to go through this whole thing, and I know I spent some time in the beginning, probably ten, fifteen, twenty minutes, to explain the word repugnant. But that is such a key to this whole thing. When the legislators create public law, statutes, whatever you want to call them, when the legislators create resolves to be voted on to make amendments, they cannot be repugnant to either of the constitutions. If it's repugnant to either one of them or any section of the constitution, then the founders believed that the legislators would have been honest and truthful enough to be able to recognize that, or they would have never put the word repugnant in there and just put it out to the people to vote on. They put that word in there to make sure that it was the legislator's job to make sure that nothing, nothing came to a committee, that nothing ever came to a committee for resolves to be amended for the people to vote on. So what happened is the people... Uh, now ignore or don't even know what the word repugnant means, 
And they figure, well, if the people vote on it, then that's okay, because the people voted on it. And then when we finally find out that it's unconstitutional, they say, well, the people voted on it. It was enacted by the people. Somebody commented here, that's why I had such a fit when Matt Dunlap, he's the uh, Secretary of State, for those who don't know, when Matt Dunlap farmed out ability to do driver license renewals to the AAA. And did he ever do Uh, that? uh, I I didn't even know he did that. Okay, well, now you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you, Ginger. You know, so they're just doing... At their will, and this is why it's so important that we watchdog and the Maine Citizens Review Board um, has a website now that we're keep trying to keep track of, you know, legislators, uh, what they're doing in Augusta, how they're voting, what bills are coming up, and any of them that are repugnant, you dump them and, and quit wasting time discussing it. And if anybody uh, wants me to repeat all those uh, definitions of what repugnance is, Call me on the telephone. (laughs) (laughs) We got it. We got it. Bill, you did a fantastic job. I want to thank you all for coming in tonight. And next week, I hope that you join us. And our scheduled guest is Charlotte Iserbeet. And that ought to be an interesting uh, call to Phil, um, you know, next week. Yes. Next week. I can't wait. Okay, I'm sure there'll be some discussion. When it comes to education in Maine, Charlotte is right there on top. Right, so she's going to be the guest. And, uh, Lise, I hope that you join, too, because you may may have some questions for her, too. Um, I do. Okay, very good. Okay, see you then. All right. Right. Thank you, Phil and Lise. Thank you all for coming in. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. It was tremendous information. I had to get it all out really quick, so if people have any questions, give me a buzz. They can go back over. I'm going to archive the program, or Leon will, and I'm going to post it on the blog, and they can go back and listen to it. Bye, Dottie. Bye, Lee. All right. Bye, Lee. All righty. Good night, everyone, and thank Good you. Good night. Bye-bye. Hey, yeah, bye. Bye-bye.